Rhonda spoke first one week, and Cheryl spoke the second week, and then I am speaking the third week, and so we're gonna do a rotation. And my name is Denise Kohlmeyer. I've been here for nine years, and um, I've actually been teaching, I think, maybe eight of those years. So it's always a joy to come up here and bring the Word of God to you. So if you will bow with me, I'll get us started, and then we'll get into our lecture. Heavenly Father, you are so good, so kind, and so gracious. We just love coming on Tuesday mornings to hear from you. And may your presence be felt here this morning, Father. May you speak to these women through a word, through a hug, through something that will touch their hearts, that will draw them closer to you and deepen their love for you. Father, we praise you, we give this time to you, and may you be glorified in all that is said and done. Amen. So, all political leanings and opinions aside, how many of you would like to meet the President of the United States? Wow, that's pretty cool. So you have that hope that someday you may meet, it doesn't have to be the present president, but you have that hope that you wanna meet the President of the United States. Well, I'm here to tell you through my research, it's next to impossible for the average person, that would be you and me, to actually get an audience with the president. We'd actually have a better hope of getting an audience with the Pope, if you'd like, or a celebrity, if you like, but not the Pontus, unless you're the Salahis. <laughs> oh yeah, so some of you remember the Salahis. They crashed a White House dinner, weren't invited, didn't have any invitation, but they wanted to meet the president, and they did. But then they got quickly escorted out of the dinner because they had not been invited. Actually, to meet the president, like I said, I did some research, you actually have to go online. And there's an online form you fill out. You fill out your name, your address, everything about you. And then there's a box at the bottom that says, what would you like to say? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I got a lot to say. But that's what you say. Then you submit the form, and I'm pretty positive it goes through an intense review by several aides and maybe higher-ups, I don't know. I don't know what happens to it after that. And then you probably are thoroughly background checked just to make sure you're not some crackpot who wants to come in and meet the president and do some harm. And then, even then, you may not get approved to even meet the president. But there's always that hope. So that is really just a kind of a minor and a poor illustration of what it would have been like for the Israelites to get to meet God, to approach God. It was next to impossible for them under the Old Covenant. Until 15 centuries later, after God instituted the Old Covenant, God started changing things up. He wanted to do something new. He wanted people to come to him, to draw closer to him, and to have a personal relationship with him. So that's what I wanted to talk about this morning. I wanna give you a comparison of the old covenant versus the new covenant. Now, when God was changing things up, his mindset was he wanted to draw a distinct line between what the old covenant was and the new covenant was, what it was to be a Jew, what it was to be a Christ follower. There were clear distinctions that he was changing it up now, and he didn't want them to marry the two. So in order to do that, 
he actually made the Au Covenant obsolete. He did away with it altogether. When he did something new, he sent us a better priest. He sent us with a better sacrifice. And that's something you're going to learn in the week study up ahead. I'm not going to go into that. I think our author does a really good um, job of teaching us what the better priesthood is through Jesus Christ. But through the new covenant, he, God was instituting a new hope because under the old covenant, there was no hope. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit. This is where I get our better hope. In the book of Hebrews, I think better, Rhonda, I think you mentioned it, happens 12 times. And this is one of them. Better name, a better son, a better temple, a better sacrifice, and now a better hope. That's what Jesus Christ is. Yet as Rhonda taught us two weeks ago, that better hope that these Hebrew Christians had already put their trust in They'd already tasted of the blessings of salvation. They were wanting to forfeit it. They were waffling. They didn't know what they wanted to do. Why? Because they were undergoing persecution. There was always a threat of death hanging over them. So they wanted to go back to the old covenant. Why would you want to do that? Because that was their comfort zone. That's what they knew. For thousands and thousands of years, and remember, God did institute the Old Covenant way. Plus, the Old Covenant didn't entail persecution and death. So these Christians are thinking, why would I want to follow Jesus when it means I might lose my life? I want to go back to that old thing, that comfort zone, where I knew I was safe and secure and I would stay alive. But the author of Hebrews, their main, he or she, I don't know who it is, that's what they're trying to convince these Hebrews to do. Stay the course. Stick it out. Don't go back to what was hopeless. Cling to the better hope that you have in Jesus Christ. And it's the same for us today, isn't it? Sometimes when things get tough and we don't like it and it gets uncomfortable, maybe you are enduring some persecution. I hope none of you are under a death threat. But there's always that possibility, that danger that we want to go back to what was comfortable, what was safe, what was secure. So in that, we can kind of relate to the Hebrews a little bit. So the letter of the Hebrews is really to us too. Stay the course. Stick it out. Don't go back. Don't go back to hopelessness. Stay with the better hope that's in Jesus Christ. And if you don't think persecution happens, the Hebrews knew it happened because it was happening to them personally. Some of us haven't experienced that. But it is happening worldwide. So I googled Open Doors, which is a, a ministry that specifically helps Christians being persecuted in other countries. They send them aid, they send them Bibles, they send them help. So they did a study from 2015 to 2016, and they determined that close to 1,200 Christ followers were murdered for their faith. Now, if you notice, the ones I did put up here are basically Middle Eastern countries. They're predominantly Muslim, and Christianity is illegal. So those people are under dire threat of actually being killed for their faith. So there is that opportunity for them, that danger for them, to go back to what was comfortable, what was secure, where their life wouldn't have been put in danger. 
it's still occurring today. I don't know if any of you follow Pastor Andrew Bronson. He's on my Facebook feed, so I get to follow to see what's going on with him. He was just recently released from jail, but he's still under house arrest. So he's wearing an electronic ankle bracelet because he has been accused of terrorist activity. Now those are trumped up charges, and we know they're false, but they gotta find something to, to nail them on. So our administration currently is trying to get his release. But persecution is happening. And I hate to say it, it might come to America <laughs> maybe sooner than we think, because more and more our country is becoming more and more intolerant of believers and truth. And when we stick up for truth, we're probably going to be persecuted. So stick the course, persevere. That's what the book of Hebrews wants to teach us. So what does the better hope mean for us, what it was for them, and what it is for us today? Well, first of all, this better hope that's found in Jesus Christ means that we have a better way of drawing closer, nearer to God. Actually, we can get closer to God than we can the president. I think that's pretty phenomenal. So let me give you a comparison so that you understand what the ancient Hebrews had to do to even get close to God. And I think it will give you a better appreciation and a deeper gratitude for what we have today when we can draw closer to God. I got a little laser, I'm so excited. Okay, oh, I got so excited, I didn't do it right. <laughs> Which one's, oh, he's gone. Laser. Okay, here we go. All right, I'm gonna explain this to you. Most of you may know this already, so it may be overview, but some of you may not understand this. So anyway, I'm gonna call him Joe Israelite. So Joe Israelite is the average Israelite like you and I would have been. This is what they would have had to do to get close to God 15 centuries ago. So here's Joe Israelite, he's bringing his unblemished lamb or goat. It had to be a very specific animal that he brought. Everybody remember looking that up in Leviticus. So he would bring his goat or lamb. He'd have to pass through this curtain, and then he would bring it here to the golden altar. On the golden altar, he would lay his, his lamb or his goat. I'm just going to say lamb for basic purposes. The priest would come up, and I'm gonna get a little graphic here, so bear with me, but I want you to understand what these people had to do. So the priest would come up, tie the lamb down, and then he'd slit the lamb's throat. That's what it meant to sacrifice the lamb. Now, Joe Israelite then would place his hands on the lamb's head. As the blood is pouring <laughs> out of the neck, I know that's gross, but are you starting to get a picture of what it was like just to draw near to God for them? It was kind of gross. So he's laying his hands on the hand, lamb's head. As the blood, which is the life source of the lamb, that is his atonement for sin. His hands on the head are his identifying his sins. On the sacrifice, the bleeding out is the fact that he is being washed and atoned for his sins. So the lamb is his sacrifice. So then, it's not even over yet, so then the priest takes the offering, the sacrificed animal, and he cuts it up. He washes the inner in, entrails, I don't know what you call them, internal organs, and the legs. I'm not quite sure why those specific pieces of the animal. He washes them up, 
and then he brings them back to the altar, and he burns them. He sets them on fire. So Joe Israelite's still standing here because the process isn't done yet. So as the animal's burning, the smoke that's rising from the burning animal is said to be a pleasing aroma to God. Now, it wouldn't be to us. <laughs> Unless it's roasting meat, I guess it would be kind of good. But that is what Joe Israelite had to do in order to get close to God. Now, know this. He can't even go past the altar. If you can see, several yards away, that's the presence of God in the most sacred part of the tabernacle. It's also divided by a very thick, heavy curtain. So Joe Israelite couldn't even go there. God was kept at a distance from him. He couldn't go past the altar. He couldn't go past the laver. He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. He was basically kept at a distance from God. That was the closest he could come. Then there's the priests, the high priest. And it's a very small percentage of the tribe of Israel. It's just the Levites. It's the tribe of the Levites. So it's a very small group of men who were allowed to go into the holy place, which is right here, to eat from the showbread, to burn incense, and to light the menorah. One person. Then one time a year, only Aaron could go into the most sacred section of the tabernacle, which is right here, the Holy of Holies, which housed the Ark of the Covenant. That's where God's presence was. One man, one time a year. That's pretty impressive. That's pretty profound that only one man could get that close to God and only one time a year. But here's the thing, the sacrificial system. And then there were the laws on top of that, 613 of them. And if you're dying for some good reading, just read the book of Leviticus. That will tell you exactly all the laws these Israelites had to obey to the T. There's laws about the sacrifices, what to sacrifice, how to sacrifice, when to sacrifice, how much to sacrifice. Looked at a little bit of that today. There were sacrifices, or I'm sorry, there were laws about civil disobedience, how you treat one another if something happened, how you handled it. There were dietary laws things you could eat, things you couldn't eat. Could you imagine your, <laughs> your husband coming home and saying, hey, honey, what's for dinner tonight? And you're like, well, we're going to have roast lamb and a side of grasshoppers. I mean, share that with your kids. They'll eat their broccoli after that. But it, it was that specific. They had so many laws to follow on top of the sacrificial system. But here's the sad thing. Neither the laws nor the sacrificial system brought them any closer to God. He was still at a distance. It didn't justify them. It didn't make them acceptable to God. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, why in the world would God do that? That's the way God instituted it because he wanted the laws and the sacrificial system to point out their imperfections, to point out that they weren't perfect, to point to the coming Messiah who would make them perfect but a lot of them didn't get it. They still tried and tried and tried and tried. They thought they could work their way to God, but they couldn't do it, and it wasn't going to make it happen. But then, like I said, 15 centuries later, 
God decided to change things up. However, in that changing of things up, he still required a sacrifice. He still required blood. Whoops, sorry. Cheryl and I were just lamenting. We're, we're learning new technology. So it gets a little, there we go. So God sent Jesus Christ. This is what he's changing up. This is what he's going to institute, a new covenant, which means agreement with people. He sent his son Jesus. He sent him as a human being. Why? Because God is spirit. God cannot die. So he had to send somebody in the form of a human who felt like us, who thought like us, and actually who could die. So Jesus Christ became that final sacrificial lamb, and I say lamb with a capital L. He was it. So Jesus hangs on a cross, and on his body, symbolic of the sacrificial lamb of the old covenant, his body is slain. How do you say that? Slung. Slain, thank you. <laughs> his body was slain. Now, we couldn't lay our hands on Jesus' head, but that's what it means to put our trust in him. The fact that he took on mankind's sins. He became that sacrificial lamb for us once and for all. Then a soldier pierced him in the side, and that wound drew blood and water. There again, it's the image of the sacrificial lamb, the life source pouring out of him that washes us clean as snow. That blood washes us, makes us pure. The blood of the lamb is what makes us pure and righteous and acceptable to God. So Jesus became the final of all finals sacrifices so that we don't have to do that anymore. Amen? How many of you want to go and slit a lamb's throat? No. So this puts it in perspective. Also, when Jesus died, the moment he breathed his last breath on the cross, that thick veil that separated man from God was torn in two, top to bottom. When Jesus breathed his last, anybody remember what he said? It is finished. His ministry that God sent him to do was finished. He died on the cross for our sins. But also in that, he finished the priesthood, he finished the sacrificial system, he finished the laws, done, no more. It is finished. This is now the new way, the new hope to come to God through Jesus Christ. So when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we appropriate that free gift of grace through faith in him and the work he did on the cross for ourselves personally, not for somebody else, but for ourselves. This is what we have. We now have the confidence to enter the most holy place on our own. We no longer need a human mediator. We no longer need the priesthood. We don't need the sacrifices to come to God. We now only have to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and then this is the blessed blessing that we have confidence to enter the most holy through the curtain which was his body shed by his blood secondly 
because of our better hope, we also have a better way of perfection. So in Hebrews 7:18 it says, because of its weakness and uselessness, the law made nothing perfect. So the Hebrews, when they heard this, <laughs> these words, can you imagine their shock? The law was weak and useless and imperfect. I mean, I think it was pretty devastating to hear those words. But that's exactly what the author of Hebrews wants to say. He wanted to shock them a little. Because if you go back to that, which is what they were threatening to do and in danger of doing, they were going back to a weak and useless and imperfect system. They were giving up everything that they already had in Jesus Christ. Let me put that in perspective for you. If I was to get up here today and tell you, so for the last 2,000 years, what Jesus did on the cross, died, rose from the dead, conquering sin and death for us on our behalf, it was useless, it was weak, and it was imperfect. Okay, so the, I wanted to shock you with that because that's exactly what they would have felt. Everything they had put their hope in, their faith in, they were now being told was obsolete. Doesn't matter. It would be like us hearing that what Jesus did was obsolete and didn't matter. Now, thankfully, that's not true. <laughs> but that's kind of what they heard. But the author of Hebrews is saying, okay, don't panic. You're already in Christ. Because these were believers who we believe were Jewish Christians. They already were perfect in Christ. If they gave that up and went back to the old system, they were in danger of losing that. So the author's like, don't do that. Don't go back to a hopeless system of trying to draw close to God. So by a single offering, he perfected, not us. We cannot perfect ourselves, but our perfection comes from the one who died on the cross on our behalf. For those who are being sanctified, so notice it says he has perfected, past tense. It's a done deal. If you're sitting here today and you've put your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you've taken on that free gift of grace through faith, you're now perfected. You are sitting here perfected, not perfect, but perfected, which means complete, whole, fulfilled. Now, I like to distinguish between the two, spiritually perfected and earthly perfected. Spiritually perfected is when Jesus died on the cross. When he died on the cross, we put our faith in him. He transfers his perfection, his righteousness, his wholeness and completeness onto us. That's the only way we are spiritually perfect. Now, earthly perfection, we know, is a trap. Don't even go there, because it's not possible. Earthly perfect means we're still going to sin. We're still going to blow it. We're going to lose our patience with our husbands. We're going to yell at our kids. We may gossip a little bit, slip of the tongue. We may complain. We know we still carry some of that sin nature with us. So that is our earth-bound body. But in Christ, we are perfect. You are complete because of your union with Jesus Christ. So you're sitting here today, 
You may not be perfect looking, your hair may be messed up, your clothes may be all rumpled and stuff, but spiritually speaking, you are already perfect. Going forward, it's already a done deal. So this is what John MacArthur says. After we become believers, some of us still wanna try to do things, but he's saying once you receive Christ, you're made whole. You don't need human philosophy, you don't need Jewish legalism, you don't need strange pagan mysticism, and you don't need abstaining aestheticism. You don't need anything else when you receive Christ and his salvation. To paraphrase John MacArthur and boil it down for us, Jesus is enough to save us, and Jesus is enough to sanctify us. I wanted to come up with a visual to show you what this looks like. I'm a visual person, so pictures always help me. So if you remember nothing else from this lecture, this is what I really want you to walk away from. Drawing close to God when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. This is how God sees you. Now I symbolized him with sons, ray sons. He looks through the cross at you. That is your perfection. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, Christ transfers his perfection, his righteousness, his wholeness, his completeness onto you. And when God looks at you, that's what he sees. He sees all of that through the cross of Christ. Remember that when you're having a tough day and you know you've blown it and you're beating yourself up. Confess it. John 1:19. when we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. Always, always, always. That's not an option. God will always forgive us. Then move on. But always remember you're still perfected in Christ. You're not perfect, but you're perfected spiritually in Christ. So where do we go with that? Like Rhonda says, so what, now what? Does anybody notice anything, an attitude we can have because of what Jesus has done for us? I underlined it. Hint, hint. What's the, what's the optimum word here? Confidence. The ancient Hebrews didn't have this confidence, ladies. They performed all the sacrifices, they kept all the laws, but they still did not have this confidence to draw close to God. We do. We do in Jesus Christ. We have confidence that we will receive mercy, and I love the fact that Candy said that this morning. I thought, I didn't, I didn't plan that, but she quoted that this morning, and I thought, that's a God thing. But we have confidence to go to God at any time, anywhere, anyhow, because of what Jesus did for us through the new covenant. We have confidence to go through the most high place to approach God in his throne room and receive mercy and grace. Now, confidence doesn't mean a demanding attitude. Confidence means we have the freedom now. We have the openness, especially in our speech, and that doesn't mean like, I'm gonna tell him what I think, like we would the president, but it means we can be honest with God, knowing he's not gonna smote us. And we have boldness to go before his throne. We can bring our concerns, our prayers, our doubts, and our sins, and always find grace, mercy, and forgiveness. That's the confidence we have in the new covenant. 
So is anybody wanting to go back to the old covenant? Like the Hebrews? Absolutely not. Why would we? Why would we? Well, fear, for one thing, is going to do that to people. And wanting comfort and not wanting to be a Christ follower that has a high cost. But we needn't be afraid. We needn't be shrinking violets because we can go with confidence and boldness to the throne of grace and find mercy and grace in our time of need. Amen? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the new covenant that he brought for us. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful. When we see the comparison of what the Israelites had to do, the channels they had to go through just to be forgiven, to have their sins atoned for, to even come into your presence, it was it's just profound. It's, it's just mind-boggling. We're so grateful that Jesus Christ ushered in a new way to come to you, Lord. May we never take that for granted. May we sing praises to your name because of it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for rending that veil that gives us access to God unhindered, that we can come to him with confidence and boldness at any time and in any way. We praise you, Jesus, in your most precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you, ladies, and have a great week.